Today we come to the final sermon in our series entitled The Life of Joseph. Over the last eight weeks, we have noted valuable lessons on faithfulness and forgiveness. We have marveled at God's sovereignty. We've been amazed at Joseph's faithfulness. It seems that God's sovereign hand had been guiding Joseph at every station and stage of his life. We find the guiding hand of God, whether Joseph is walking around aimlessly in the fields of Shechem, being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, having to spend time in jail because of false allegations of rape by Mrs. Potiphar, remaining incarcerated for years because the cupbearer simply forgot Joseph, or being called into the audience of Pharaoh to be used in the king's service simply because Joseph had the uncanny ability to interpret a dream stating that there will be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine, or even when Joseph is dramatically reunited with his brothers at every station of his life, we find God's sovereign hand guiding him. Sometimes that hand of sovereignty is subtle, yet it's always spectacular. What's true for Joseph is also true for you. It is God's hand of sovereignty that's been guiding your life in every chapter of your existence. We've also marveled at the faithfulness of Joseph. In those moments when he could have, should have, would have festered resentment. It seemed that he fostered reconciliation. In those moments when you and I would have nursed a grudge, it seems that Joseph extended grace to those who harmed him so deeply. So today, we come to the rest of the story. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter 50. I will be reading this morning verses 15 to 21. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 50, let's begin at verse 15, and we'll read through verse 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came, threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Once again, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, 
the saving of many lives. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Following the death of the patriarch Jacob, the brothers of Joseph were gripped by fear. They feared that now their brother, Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, would let down the hammer. They believed that Joseph had demonstrated a great deal of restraint simply out of respect for his father, Jacob. And now that Father Jacob has died, they are fearful that the other shoe is going to drop. They're afraid that Joseph is going to level against them what they deserve. Retribution. Retaliation. All the brothers grieved the death of their father, but probably no one grieved more the death of Jacob than his beloved son, Joseph. The Egyptians gave Jacob a funeral fit for a king. Pharaoh said to Joseph, you and your brothers, take your father back to your homeland and there you can do to him as is your custom. The brothers were fearful that once Joseph laid eyes on the home place, that the wound would be reopened and that what would emerge would be spontaneous rage that would be like a, an erupting volcano. They were afraid that when Joseph got back and, and saw the home, that all of the images and the memories and all of the things, all the pain would come flooding back into his mind and that he would retaliate against them. In the 1994 movie entitled Forrest Gump, Jenny had a similar situation. If you saw the movie, which many of you probably did, Jenny is the childhood friend of Forrest and the love of his life. To say that Jenny had a dysfunctional family is to speak a great uh, understatement. Jenny struggled and suffered under the hands of an abusive father. Because of the things done to her, it set her on a path of self-destruction and emptiness. Her past experiences hardened her completely. At one of the later scenes of the movie, Jenny and Forrest go back to Jenny's childhood home. By now, it's abandoned. At the mere sight of the house, Jenny responds in rage. She picks up every rock she could find and she hurls those rocks at the house, busting out windows, tearing up door frames, putting gaping holes in the wooden, wooden siding. And all the while, as she's going through this tantrum, Forrest just stands and stares at his friend. When she's finished, because all the rocks around her have already been thrown, Forrest says in a way that only Forrest can say it. Sometimes there's just not enough rocks. Had she had all the rocks on the planet, it would not have been enough to remove the pain. She would have thrown all of them and it would not in any way eased her suffering. But it still would not have stopped her from throwing rocks. 
In our story, the brothers of Joseph fear that Joseph is going to throw rocks of retaliation. Now, all those rocks of retaliation, revenge, and resentment, they're not going to ease any potential pain that Joseph has in his heart, but it won't stop him from trying, right? So this is what they're fearful of. They are afraid that Joseph will retaliate in a way to try to ease any potential anger. They send him a letter. The letter is a letter that was penned while Jacob was on his deathbed. It's a letter that says, leave these instructions for Joseph. Joseph, please forgive your brothers for all the wrongs that they did and how badly they treated you. When I read that letter, there's part of me that thinks, did Jacob really write this? I mean, I don't fancy myself as an overly jaded individual, but I do know humanity. Is this an example of the brothers just trying to save their own skin? Did Daddy Jacob actually say that? Did, did he give these final requests of, of Joseph, please forgive your brothers for all the wrong that they did in treating you so badly? As I think that, I, I'm reminded that the author of Scripture doesn't question the authenticity of the deathbed statement. The author of Scripture never raises any red flags saying, now, you and I both know that Jacob didn't do this, but the brothers of Joseph wrote this so that they could potentially save their own hide. No, the author seems to say it's a legitimate letter. And then that causes me to realize, isn't this the request of every father? Doesn't every dad want his children to be reconciled to each other? Isn't this what every parent wants? Isn't this what every father desires? That hoping that reconciliation will occur before he passes away, but certainly after his passing, he hopes that the children will be reconciled one to the other. Isn't this what every dad wants? Certainly this is what Father Jacob wanted. Probably he did make this request. Joseph, please, I know that your brothers have harmed you severely. By the time of the death of Jacob, what happened to Joseph by the hands of his brothers took place 40 years earlier. Four decades had come and gone. And certainly this father must have wanted for all of his sons to be reunited. And so probably he made this request. When Joseph reads the letter, Scripture says that he wept. He cries uncontrollably. Why? I think the reason is because he realizes that his brothers have not believed nor received the forgiveness he has given with no strings attached. For 17 years, the brothers of Joseph have been living there in Egypt with the prime minister, the prince of Egypt. For 17 years. We recall a couple of weeks ago, we studied Genesis chapter 45, and it's there where Joseph finally reveals his true identity to his brothers, and he says to them, do not be afraid of what you did to me. Do not be angry at yourselves, for it was not you that sent me here, but God. God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant, to bring about a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you, but it was God who sent me here. 
And I promise, Joseph said, that I will provide for you and for your families. You will go back and receive and retrieve all of your families. Come here and live with me. And I will take care of all of your needs and provisions. You won't go without anything. Not just for you and your family, but especially for our aged father. I will take care of everything. And for 17 years, he made good on that promise. For 17 years, Joseph made good. And his family never wanted for anything. And when Joseph reads the letter, he realizes that his brothers still do not believe in the forgiveness with no strings attached. And once again, I've got to acknowledge that that kind of forgiveness is not normal, is it? It's really quite abnormal. Most people will say, I forgive you, but they don't mean it. (laughs) But Joseph did mean it, and he showed it, and he demonstrated it. For 17 years, he provided everything that they needed. And now that their father had died, and they went back home, and they buried him properly, and gave him a, a dignified funeral, and now they've come back, and all the brothers are worried, and they're anxious, and they're upset, and butterflies are in their stomach, and they're wondering, when is the other shoe going to drop? He's going to lower the hammer now. Please forgive us. And Joseph says, I have forgiven you. I forgave you long before you ever showed up in my court. Joseph understood what forgiveness was. How? I think he realized that because God had forgiven him, he was compelled to forgive others, even his brothers, even those that had hurt him and harmed him deeply. He was compelled, not because necessarily he loved them so much, but because he loves God so much. So because God had forgiven him, he was compelled to forgive others. It was John Wesley who said, there was a gentleman who came up to him and said, I never forgive and I never forget. And Wesley looked at him and said, sir, I hope that you also never sin. Because... Isn't that the desire of the one who has sinned, that the one to whom he has sinned against will forgive and forget? Isn't that the desire? Yes, I have wronged you, and I plead and I hope that you will forgive and forget, not bring it back up. Joseph understood what forgiveness was all about. He knew that forgiveness is not keeping score. He knew that forgiveness was forfeiting his right to get even. At a previous church, there was a young teenager who came and talked to me one day. He told me the sordid story of how his father had abused him for years as a child. I knew the family well. I knew the father, knew the mother, knew all the children. This teenage boy is telling me this, and as he is recounting the story, there is rage, there is anger, there is brokenness, there is frustration, there is uh, sadness, there are tears. And as he's telling the story, he is reliving the story. We talked for several occasions. This young man was called into ministry. I remember one day I asked him, When are you going to forgive your dad? He looked at me as if I was a complete idiot. Forgive him? There's no way I could ever forgive him for what he did to me. 
I asked him, I said, if you don't forgive your dad, who does that hurt? You or your dad? And without hesitation, he answered, my dad. And without hesitation, I answered, you're wrong. It doesn't hurt your dad if you don't forgive him. Your dad's going to go on whether you forgive him or don't forgive him. But you may not go on if you don't forgive him. If you don't forgive your father, it does not hurt your father. It hurts you. It just might leave you stuck just spinning your wheels in this experience. And you'll never have traction and you'll never get beyond it. Oh, yes, you'll continue to have the passage of time, but you won't have the passage of the experience. And you'll just sit there and get stuck in this moment. Because it was Philip Yancey who wisely said, that forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free, only to discover that you are the prisoner. Joseph had been incarcerated long enough. He had been in a physical prison. He wasn't about to imprison his soul, imprison himself in bitterness. So long before the brothers ever, ever came searching for grain, he had forgiven them completely. When he reads this letter, he realizes they don't receive. They have not believed the forgiveness with no strings attached. And he begins to weep. He begins to wail. And all of a sudden, the brothers come in and they bow down before him. And they say, we are your slaves. My friends, this story has now come full circle. You do realize that way back in Genesis 37, Joseph had dreams. And one dream he had in particular was that they were out in the field and they were binding sheaves of grain. And his sheaf stood up taller than any of the rest. And all the 11 brothers came and their sheaf bowed down in front of him. And he had the audacity to tell his brothers about the dream and then say, isn't that a cool dream? And then he said, I had another dream. And in this other dream, there was the sun and the moon and 11 stars that circled the planets. They said, do you mean to think that you're the center of the universe and somehow our lives are going to revolve around you, that you're going to rule over us, that we're going to come and bow down in front of you? And 40 years later, the truth of the dream becomes a reality. Stories come full circle. They enter in. They bow down before him. Joseph has not forgotten his dream. He could have in that moment said, aha, <laughs> now do you believe what I told you four decades ago? But instead, what does he say? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do not be afraid. He uses that declaration, do not be afraid, as bookends around what he says at the very beginning, at the very end. He says it not once but twice. Do not be afraid. You have nothing to fear. Am I God? The answer is no, I'm not God. Vengeance is not mine, declares Joseph. Vengeance is the Lord. I am not God. What you intended was evil and wicked, but God intended it for good. And then the author tells us that Joseph spoke kindly to them. Once again, the story has come full circle. Do you recall in Genesis 37, these brothers, and I quote, could not speak a kind word about Joseph. 
And here at the end of the story, it is Joseph who, and I quote, speaks a kind word towards them. Full circle. The story is complete. It has come full circle. And embedded in this end of story reality is this nugget of truth where Joseph says a mouthful. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. For what is being accomplished. The saving of many lives. This morning, I want you to note something that we spoke about two weeks ago, but need to be reminded again. Our God writes our narrative with a holy conjunction. But God. That two-word phrase changes everything. It's a pivot. It, it's, it's something that is a game changer. The Narrative of the story goes in one direction and then the Lord inserts that two-word holy conjunction, but God and everything in the story pivots. Everything changes. The direction, the mood, the tone, everything. And that's true not in Joseph's life, but in your life as well. It is God who narrates our story. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. In no way am I belittling or diminishing your responsibility. Certainly in life, you make choices, I make choices, and those choices bear consequences. And sometimes they're positive consequences, other times it's negative consequences. Many times it's based upon the choices that we make. So the choices that you and I make are extremely important. And for us to declare that God narrates our story in no way diminishes the human responsibility to make wise decisions. So don't misunderstand me. You have a part to play in your narrative. But can we all agree that God is so sovereign that he narrates our stories? Nothing happens apart from his divine will. God is in control of all things. Good things, bad things, helpful things, harmful things, terrific things, terrible things. God is in charge of all things. And God narrates our story. And he writes our story with a holy conjunction. The first time we're introduced to this is in Genesis 45. Don't be angry at yourselves for you did not send me here, but God sent me here to preserve a remnant, to bring about a great deliverance. Joseph acknowledges that it's God who has written his story. He has inserted that divine, holy conjunction, but God. I realize that it only takes you a few minutes to read from Genesis 45 to Genesis 50. It's only five chapters of scripture space. It doesn't take long to read at all. Just a few minutes, but it took 17 years to live. And it's almost as if the Lord says, this is so important. I've got to tell you not once but twice. Need to remind you. You know why God needs to remind us of some stuff? Because we are forgetful people. We just may forget how big our God is. We just may forget how sovereign our Lord is. We just may forget how our God is an awesome author and he narrates our text. He narrates our stories with holy conjunctions. So he tells us not only in Genesis 45, but he reminds us in Genesis 50 that he writes with a holy conjunction, but God. And it's not the only place. He does it all throughout scripture. Following the death of Joseph, there's a new Pharaoh who comes to power, one who knew not Joseph. When he saw the ever-growing number of Hebrews, the new Pharaoh became fearful, so he enslaved them. 
They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They cried out to the Lord. They groaned because of their taskmasters. They pleaded with the Lord. And even though the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, but God raised up an 80-year-old shepherd. His name, Moses. And God called him through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. And the Lord said to Moses, go down to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses gave, like you and I give, numerous excuses of why he was not the right man for the job. And every time God refuted the excuse and said, no, I have sovereignly selected you. You are part of my holy conjunction. But God, I need you to go down. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, I promise I will deliver my children from Egyptian captivity. And sure enough, God did it. How? With a holy conjunction. But God. After Moses died, Joshua led the team. He was leading the charge. They were going back to the promised land. They went to the city called Jericho. It was too strong for them. It was too fortified. There was no way that Joshua and all of his mighty men could overpower the city. But God showed up. And God gave a new strategy. You want to hear the strategy? The strategy of God was this. Uh, Joshua, I want you to uh, take the people and surround the city, walk around it one time per day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to surround it and go around it seven times. And then I want everybody to shout. That's it. That's it. That's the plan. That's how we're going to take the city. That's how we're going to take the city. Okay, so for six days, they circled the city once a day. On the seventh day, all of them circled the city uh, seven times, and then they all shouted, and what happened? The walls came tumbling down. How do you explain that? With a two-word holy conjunction, but God? There's no way that Joshua could do it, but God showed up, and he showed out. And he did what only he could do. You got the prophet named Jonah. I like Jonah's story uh, probably because it resembles my story and it just might resemble your story. The Lord called Jonah, that mighty prophet of the Lord, said, I need you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach the gospel. And Jonah said, I'll go anywhere but Nineveh. Do you know why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? It's because he hated the Ninevites. He hated the people living in Nineveh. He hated them, probably for good reason. Probably some of those individuals of the Assyrian country had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and probably had deported some of Jonah's own family members and maybe even had executed them in the sight of the prophet. And this one named Jonah said, I've got an ax to grind against the people of Nineveh. And rightfully so. He said, Lord, I'll go anywhere except there. I don't want to go there. In fact, I'm not going to go there. He goes down and boards a boat, sets sail for Tarshish, the opposite direction of Nineveh. He thought he could outrun God. But you know what? You can't outrun God. Some of you may be in here today and you're running. You're running from God. Can I give you a news flash? You can't outrun God. You can't outmaneuver God. You can't outsmart God because your God, my God, the God is a huge God. Sovereign is he as a savior. He knows exactly where we are. He knows that Jonah's not going to Nineveh. He knows what 
boat he's on. And so God inserts a holy conjunction. Jonah was going to Tarshish, but God commanded a storm and a fish. The storm sent the seasoned sailors off crying like schoolgirls. Jonah was asleep in the bottom of the boat. He woke up. He said, guys, if you throw me overboard, the storm will subside. Sure enough, they did. And God commanded a great fish, and it swallowed Jonah. For three days, Jonah was in the acidic, smelly belly of that fish. And God got his attention. Huh, imagine that. Being in a smelly belly of a fish, surrounded by seaweed and everything else that the fish was eating, he said, Lord, if you get me out of here, I'll go to Nineveh. Lord said, Jonah, I thought you might come to that conclusion. Buddy, I got you in this mess. I got you in this fish. I got to get you out. And Jonah said, well, I think there are only two exit routes. God said, you're very observant, prophet. North and south. Which way you want to exit? North or south? And Jonah says, oh, I don't want to go south. Don't, don't really want to go north, but I do not want to go south. So God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah on dry ground. By the time Jonah is spewed out of that fish, his skin is bleached. He is a sight for sore eyes. He is a sight to behold. And he lands on the beach and he says, God, I'll go where you tell me to go. And God says, well, guess what? I want you to go to Nineveh. Funny thing about God. God rarely changes his mind. What he told you to do before disobedience is what he's going to tell you to do after you come to obedience. So God doesn't necessarily change his mind all that often. Where do you want me to go? I need you to go to Nineveh. What do you mean do? I need you to preach the gospel. And when God's gospel is preached, guess what happens? People come to faith in Christ. That always takes place. How do you explain the story of Jonah? It's a holy conjunction, but God. Some of you may know the pain of falling on the jagged edge of a broken relationship. Some of you might know the discomfort of a disease that has been handed to you that's inoperable. Some of you know the suffering that's associated with a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. Some of you know what it is to struggle with financial difficulty. It seems that time after time there is far more month than money and you wonder how you're going to make it. I want you to know this morning, don't give up. You may come into this house hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. That's okay. God's not through with your story yet. I know this because you're still breathing. At least I think you're still breathing. Y'all are still breathing, so I know that God's not done with your story on earth yet. And at just the right moment, God will write with a holy conjunction. But not only does he narrate our story with a holy conjunction because he's a sovereign savior of the universe, there is a second thing that I want you to note from verse 20 of chapter 50 of Genesis. God's plan will prevail. 
I had a professor in seminary who would say, there is nothing and no one who can thwart the will of God. I like that word. Nobody uses that word anymore, thwart. It's really hard to say. Try to say it five times. Not now, but later. Try to say it five times in a row. It's hard to say. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Thwart. But it's a great word. What it means is that no one and nothing can stand up to God and stop him. No one can slow down the will of God. No one can divert the will of God because God's plan will prevail. It always has and it always will. Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me. What you did was wicked. He doesn't diminish or demote the reality of the pain in his life. And you don't need to either. You know, there are people who say, oh, that didn't hurt me. No, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, what they said about me, what he did to me, uh, what they uh, leveled against me, oh, that didn't hurt. Baloney. Yes, it does. And the intention was wicked. Go ahead and call it what it is. What you meant to do was evil, Joseph says. But even your evil intention cannot thwart the will of God because God's plan will prevail. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is in the business of taking wicked intentions, turning them upside down, inside out, and bringing out his perfect plan. Only God can do this. Only a big God, only a sovereign God can do this. You and I can't do this, but God can. It was Jezebel who had a wicked intention against Elijah. Ladies, if you are ever called a Jezebel, that is not a compliment. Jezebel was a bad gal, a wicked woman. She said, may your God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you're not dead by my hands. And Elijah believed her. He said, she's going to kill me. And so it sent him into a tailspin of depression. He ran like a marathon, went to a mountain and said, God, take my life. Because if anybody's going to kill me, I want you to kill me and not Jezebel. Somebody's going to kill me tonight and I want it to be you. So God, take my life. It's over. I'm the only prophet. There ain't nobody like me. I'm all alone. Elijah is not just having the blues. He's not just melancholy. He is depressed. And the Lord says, I'll take her wicked intention. And she cannot stop my perfect plan. For I have 7,000 prophets who've never bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, I would kill you, but I'm not through with you yet. But when I'm done with you, I'll kill you. I'll take you home. But it's just not now. Because God can take a wicked intention and turn it into his perfect plan. He did the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had an evil, wicked intention. He came in and deported many of the best and brightest that Judah had to offer in the southern kingdom. And it's the prophet Jeremiah who says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Do you know when Jeremiah declares this? As the people are leaving in shackles. As they're leaving their homes, going to a foreign land with foreign gods, foreign territory, foreign culture, they're going to God-forsaken areas. It is the man of God who stands up with the word of God, says to the people of God, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and this is not over. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Because God's plan will prevail. When I think about the most wicked plan in all of human history, 
I'm reminded of what took place some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified. The intention of the Roman soldiers, the intention of the religious rulers of Israel was nothing short of wicked. They seized Jesus. They beat him beyond human recognition. They nailed him to a tree. They caused him to die in the most horrible way possible, crucifixion. And Jesus writhed in pain. They nailed his hands and feet to the cross. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They shoved a sword into his side. And the religious rulers gathered at the foot of the cross and they gloated. It was wicked. From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness to cover the land. And Jesus declared, it is finished. He breathed his last and he gave up his ghost. And the God-man died. Wicked intentions. But God, on the third day, raised his son from the dead. Because nothing and no one can thwart the will of God. Because God's plan will prevail. He can take that which is so evil and wicked. He can flip it upside down, inside out, turn it right side up, and he can accomplish his perfect plan, not only in the Bible, but in your life and in my life. So have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. So have faith in God. Have faith. In God. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Church, this morning I came just to tell you that God writes your narrative with a holy conjunction and that God's plan in your life will prevail. And that is the rest of the story. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there is someone listening to my voice who has never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I pray that in this very moment, they will acknowledge their sin before Christ. And Lord, they will ask you to come into their heart to forgive them of all of their mess ups and be in charge and sovereign and in control of their living. And Father, if one person is here and they just did that, I pray that right now when the first note is struck, that they will come down this aisle, take a pastor by the hand, and say, I've just asked Jesus to come into my life. Father, if there's someone here who in need of prayer, I pray and I ask for them to come and kneel here at the altar and pray. If there's someone who needs a home, a faith family, Lord, will you please draw them to this church? Have your way in this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.